Well, I mean, it was just, I was never looking at this like I have to just be a stand-up. I have to just be a touring headliner. I just wanted to do comedy. And I wanted to do it in whatever capacity was best for me. You know, it's important to open the doors that open. Exactly. You can't, you can't go into any industry and think you're going to just force what your dreams are. You have to figure out what you're best at. And I'm best at certain things and I'm not best at others. And I, don't, I only want to compete in something where I might be the best. I only want to try something where I have a chance at being at the top. You know, I don't think I'm ever going to be the best headlining stand-up alone. It's just not what I'm best at. I'm not that charismatic. I'm not that affable on stage. I can write good jokes. So I want to do what I have a chance of being at least a chance that I could be among the best of. So I was like, I know I got to do what's best for me. And I'm really good at pissing people off. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know people who are really charismatic and really good on stage, but write shit jokes? Yes, I do. (laughs) Does that piss you off? Yeah. Does that piss you off in a way? Or is it like you help them? No, I think it's great that they found a way into comedy. Just because their jokes are bad doesn't mean they don't belong at the top. Get yourself shot. Yo, keep it basement. Keep it basement. Back at it, baby, with the bang bangers. This week's episode is brought to you by Colt 45 and Bananas, Breakfast of Champions. Hey, what's going on? This is Tay, the former co-host of Keep It Basement with the Sweens. I see the boy Sweens done blew up without me. You are tuned in to Keep It Basement and keep it locked here. Yeah. More fire. Come on, man. I'm too Hollywood for this podcast. Yeah, I heard you tried to get bitches to the crib. That didn't work, obviously. And then your bum-ass intern, very unreliable and unprofessional. <laughs> keep, up, keep, keep, keep the basement, man. What, keep it, what radio? It's basement radio. Keep it basement? Put it down with Mike Sweeney. Mike Sweeney, keep it basement, the idiot. What's going on? This is Mike Sweeney. What's up, homie? Do you want me to shout out Mike Sweeney? Or, or, what are you, Jewish? Uh, no, I'm actually not. No, I'm not Jewish. Would it be better if, you, uh, well, if I told you I was Jewish? Oh, no, you're a white kid, right? Yeah, white. Yeah, I'm white. Oh, no, I'm just trying to Sweeney. I know something. All right, so basically, you want me to shout out Keep It Basement, right? We in the building. Still- keep It Basement? Yeah. Keep it what? Like, keep it, like, keep it in the house. Keep it yeah. in. Keep It Basement. Yes. And what, what's your names, you guys? My name is what? My name is Kevin Sweeney. Mike Sweeney. But that was so good. Oh, man. How did I get that wrong? Nikki Paris, and you're listening to Keep a Basement Radio. Don't go anywhere, bitch. And you keep doing you. All right, Sweeney, I'm going to see you later. Stay black. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's not so bad. There we have it, folks. Keep it, <laughs> keep it Basement Podcast. It's time to make my move. Sweet taste of victory, like Oprah's Manny. Damn, that shit was dope. Damn, son, where'd you find this? All right, guys, keep it basement. Uh, Tom Zappi, Alex Nicholas, Mike Sweeney. We have Dave Cyrus here, co-writer of the brand new movie, The King of Staten Island, which was phenomenal, by the way. We all saw it, loved it. Uh, Dave's also a comic. You know, he's been doing it a long time. Writer, 
SNL writer at, at one point, you know, just a bunch of different shit. Triumph, the insult dog. And we thank you for coming, for joining us, dude, right in the midst of the movie coming out. I, we know the world's on fire, but the movie is a great way to escape it. So, well, so thank you for coming on, dude. Appreciate I it. appreciate that. And yes, it is extremely weird talking about a movie right now. I've never felt like such an asshole being like, <laughs> listen, I know we're in the most important civil rights era of our generation, but I want you to spend money on my movie <laughs> at home. I want you to know that's what's really important now. Yeah, like I couldn't possibly be more like not excited to pitch this movie. You know, in general, like I just, I always feel like I'm like, I have to just be like, listen, I know this isn't important. But if you want to watch it, thank you. By all means. <laughs> no, dude, it was so good. I know, I know we all loved it. Um, we were just talking before you guys came back in. Um, you know, I was I was I was watching a couple. You know, I don't know if there was Tonight Show or whatever. Pete, Pete appearances talking about the movie, and then because you got you and so basically, Dave, you and Pete have been co-writers. You know, for you've known Pete since what? He since probably when he first started, maybe like seventeen or eighteen. I met him when he was eighteen. We started writing together like less than a year after that. So I was already his writing partner before SNL. In and fact, you guys have I, written a bunch of scripts already, right? Yeah. So before he got SNL, we we wrote one script. And then Judd liked it. It was like, hey, let's write a movie together. And then Pete got SNL. So all that got canceled. Okay. And then years later, we wrote another script for Todd Phillips at Warner Brothers that he passed on filming and actually ended up doing The Joker instead. That's crazy. And then that script, Judd also read and was like, oh, wow. And Judd even said, he was like, oh, this is a big improvement over the previous one I I read of you guys. Let's do this thing again where we're going to write a movie together. And with that initial script... Like you were saying, like like I've been hearing, were basically pure comedies because because Judd kind of came in and made this movie, you know, not a full on comedy. It's kind of like a you know a be all end all like great story, but like dips and turns. I mean, the first scene is a suicide attempt, so it's kind of like, yeah. you know, he brought you know, in his own spin. The, it, Judd the original, yeah, the original script was going to be something like the, the the original story that we did for Todd Phillips, which is basically unrelated to this one. Like, there's not really a lot of similarity, but it just sort of the what got Judd interested and he said let's start over that was a script about Pete trying to find men to have sex with his mother (laughs) and just trying to get mom about him and his sister doing like you know wacky capers to (laughs) like make it look organic as they set up men to seduce his his own mother (laughs) that sounds hilarious so that's how different it was like did you pitch that to Judd no, uh, Judd read that and liked it, and but was like, yeah, let's let's start from the beginning, let's start all over, and that's when the idea came about that he was like, let's really get into Pete's life and really just make this a emotionally accurate story that's fictional. Right. Wow. Uh, no, yeah, I mean, that's, that's funny about the Pete's uh, mom thing because he always talks about that in interviews, like in the Breakfast Club, he'll bring that up to Charlemagne, and I've heard him say that on stage and just like various various things. Yeah, because yeah, she hasn't dated. Since 9-11. Yeah. A long time. I can connect. Yeah, I got a single. I, my parents got divorced when I was young. So, like, for a long-ass time, like, my mom didn't date anybody. And she got remarried and then didn't date for a minute again. And now she has, like, a new boyfriend. And it's, like, weird. So, like, as soon as I saw this movie, it kind of came at the perfect time. Hmm. I was like, I get it already like, like that weird just like you're old like you're an older dude you're not a little boy 
It's not like a new stepdad. You're like, who the fuck is this dude? <laughs> yeah. Funny thing, my mom's uh, new husband, my mom, the man that she married long after divorcing my dad, uh, his name is Ray. And I have to continually convince him that that's not why the character's name is Ray. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. No, the character's name is Ray because when we wrote the, wrote the first version of it, we used Ray Romano as our idea of who he would be. Really? <laughs> yes, that's, it is Ray Romano. That's where he the name the Ray comes from. You went the complete opposite direction with Bill Burr. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hilarious. Yeah, how did, like, was that, obviously when Judd comes into play on, like, a uh, movie, it's, you know, going to be incredible. But, like, in terms of the cast, did you, because I heard you on another interview, you were talking about how you were in some of the, I think you were in some of the auditions for, I don't know, yeah. Pete's girlfriend or, or Pete's sister, whoever. Um, was the yeah, goal yeah, was... always to have, because uh, the, the film's littered with, like, comics. Like, you're not going to, you might not pick up on all of it if you're not a comic, but, like, to have Bill Burr in that role, like, I couldn't picture a you know a better fit for for that you know it was our, yeah he bill was the person that pete and i initially were like that's the best person for this character uh there are definitely other people we thought about like other names that were considered like bobby cannaval someone like that wow uh that was that was one of the names we thought but actually bobby cannaval was who we were initially wanting when it was the older version of the script when it was the wacky comedy uh, that he would have been the sleazy guy that we set up with his mom and then realize he's a dirtbag. Uh, that was like one is more flip the other way where it's he's the exact he's opposite. Yeah. He's cool. Uh, sick. Where he thinks he's a dirtbag, but he's not. Yeah. Yeah. Is that now did you go with that angle because it was more there were more layers to it as like you're covering a feature film time? Well, it's more because it was Judd was the one who kind of came up with that angle that we were going to say the initial angle of getting mom laid and then go reverse and say, no, let's go as realistic as we can. Okay. Let's go as real as we can. The only real difference is that like, you know, it's not Pete's mother never dated a fireman and we have no idea what would have happened if she did. Pete probably would have been fine with it unless that guy started putting him out of his comfort zone. That's sort of the assumptions. We're sort of just sort of imagining who Pete might be in this world where he doesn't have a creative outlet. He doesn't have any success. He doesn't have any of the benefits that the real person has had. Okay. And how he might be not able to deal with this shit. And, and Judd or Pete brought in the, the tattoo artist idea, right? Um, you know, I don't remember where that first was considered. I just know that I can tell you what I feel like I remember was we, Pete and I, the one thing we were never ever open to was that his character would be a comedian. That was right. never ever something we would consider. So we had a short list of jobs of what he could be. Tattoo artist was one of them. We, we, that tattoo artist was one of the main jobs. We were like, this could be, and that Judd was the one who was like, oh, that, let's do that one. That's like an original, we haven't seen that much. But like, the, uh, but like we've written versions where he was a DJ, like a, you know, like a, like a wedding DJ, you know, just trying to make money uh, or just a guy working at a GameStop with aspirations of uh, like just something creative. You know, I remember I once really wanted him to be into model planes and no one liked that. I wanted him to just spend all his time making like model like spaceships. Like okay. I always, I consistently wanted this character to be nerdier than he was. That was something that 
I was more comfortable with it. I thought there's a lot you could do with that. You know, like, I think a good example of like the differences between is like, I, here's an example of something. I wanted Bill Burr and Margie, uh, uh, Marissa Tomei, I wanted them to bond initially over the fact that they were both punks in the 80s. <laughs> I wanted them to realize they went to the same concerts at CBGB's in the 80s. That's super original. And, I like that. and, I, I like and that's that. when I found out that Pete fucking hates punk music. Oh yeah, <laughs> like not like it just he's never listened to it and like the uh, it was the most alien thing I could have brought up to him basically. <laughs> That's great. Not and, then, and obviously he doesn't actually hate it, but like he's literally never listened to punk, and I listened to oh. it my whole life. And on the surface, you would swear like that would be something he's into if you didn't know him that well. Like, Maybe yeah, but he's pretty much only into like hip hop uh, and hits. Yeah, he right. loves a good cheesy hit in general. <laughs> That's what's up. But was that, by the way, the, the one thing I, I, I picked up on, I was, trying to, I was trying to figure out if it was just me overthinking as a comic. That scene where they're talking about uh, his dad, uh, like, being in the coke, and then Burr was like, uh, uh, one of the firemen's faces should have been on a nickel in Bolivia. Was that riffed off the cuff, like, right then and there? Or was that written into the script? I think that might have been an improv. I think that might have been Bill. Yeah, because I yeah <laughs> I was watching the laugh that he got from everybody, and I was like, yeah. that just reminded me too much of like when we're at the bar just talking shit. And like, I think that I I actually think that very well. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think that might have been Bill. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was funny as hell though. Yeah, I was like, dude, that whole know, throughout was great. It was so good. I know you were saying the script was never set in stone. You guys were basically messing with it like every day. Yeah. So like, was, uh, was everyone, was it a free, was it like you, Bill, Pete, Judd, whoever, like putting in ideas or was it mostly just you and Pete? Cause I know you said you never, like nothing was finalized in, until the movie was done shot basically. Well, it depends on when you're talking about. So like, yeah, go ahead. before we shot, it was the first stage of it was me, Pete, and Judd. And we wrote a few versions of the script that way. Then when we got closer to production, that's when Judah Miller started being involved as an executive producer. And he was one of the other people that we were writing with alongside, you know, just everyone kept writing new generations of things, tweaking things, offering new things. So he was as executive producer. That was one of his, he's one of Judd's main guys. He was doing that. And then when we started filming, we had Ricky Velez also doing that. So it was me, basically it was me, Ricky and Judah spending every day on set, rewriting whatever we did while Judd and Pete had all these other things to work to worry about anyway. And then there, but they also would write a lot simply because both Judd and Pete are improvising the whole time also because they're writers, they're in a position where they can accurately improvise dialogue. Mm, right. So Judd was yelling out dialogue in every scene as an improvisation on top of telling them which of the jokes that we had been pitching that day. And then Pete was able to have the room because he had written this part to riff and be in the moment and do so many things that were very organic for the moment there. That's sick. Does that include the, uh, the basement scene too? I mean, yeah, that's everything. I no, mean, every, oh, wow, everything. Wow, that's sick. Everything that we shot, Pete, not all of it, but uh, much of it, he changed the wording, he improvised things, because that's what you can do when you're 
a co-writer and you're an actor, you yeah. have the, the leeway. You can, he's able to write and he's writing in that moment. And, uh, and so on yeah, top I mean, of that, he's a comic too. So there's the, Yeah, exactly. And yeah, Pete's best instincts, Pete's a very onstage writer. He's a guy who writes a lot of his material just while on stage. So it, it, came, it came very naturally in those moments. And this is after spending a lot of time, the three of us, writing the initial script. So we're very comfortable with the material. We know exactly what has to happen. And that's sort of how Judd lets people improvise. He has a very narrow idea of what has to transpire, but he'll give you the room to put it in your own words if you can keep what's funny about it. That's great. I like the very beginning stages, like when you guys, when Judd maybe first came in and, and gave his ideas, was Pete uh, hesitant to go on like a straight kind of biopic toe? Like, obviously it's not, it's like based off his life. It's fictional, but it's like basically the structure of his life, at least most parts. Was he hesitant? It certainly wasn't. It, it definitely wasn't something that Pete and I envisioned. It wasn't what we went into it thinking we would do, but we trusted Judd and we trusted that he knew how to make this the best version of the movie. And, you know, we'd done previous scripts where, we had very little involvement from the peop from the studio or the people we were working with, or had ones where they would just hire rewrite guys who would just kind of just give you a worse version of what you'd already done. So this was a good, ex this is what we wanted to do was we wanted to from day one work with Judd and organically create it together. We wanted to learn from him. We wanted to be better at this. So we were very open to whatever he wanted to do. But I mean, over the course, of course, there's things that we said yes to things we said no to things that everyone you know that we had to figure out but the idea of making it so close to pete's life it isn't what we initially envisioned but at the same time pete in all the scripts we've done the characters are always somewhat based in pete because we're trying to have him draw from his real life so previous movies he's he usually doesn't have a father We've never written a movie where Pete's character had a living father because he doesn't have experience with that. Right. Um, scenes like kind of, kind of more obviously the more dramatic scenes like the, like um, when when they go to the baseball game and Pete kind of goes off on the fireman about being firemen with with families, etc. Is that more of a you know, I, I imagine, did Judd, like, kind of suggest those scenes and then Pete kind of made it his own, like you said, since he would improv a lot? Like, was he, were those, were those scenes there initially or they kind of come as the, as the script, you know, as the movie went on? I mean, it, went on? I don't remember exactly, but that, that the, the baseball scene, that was definitely a script. I mean, most of what you saw was scripted in advance. Like, everything was scripted. It just, things change little by little throughout. They keep changing. You keep you know, you keep, every time you've shot something, you have to then remember what you shot and think, well, does this work with what we already have? Is this tone match? Stuff like that. But the, uh, the stuff in the baseball game was pretty much all written. Uh, definitely Pete improved a lot uh, because that's what he does. That's what he's good at. But there was nothing, but that wasn't like a wholly made up thing. The things that his character were saying, the kind of dark stuff about firemen having families, that's what Pete really believed as a kid. That was Pete's real opinions as a child that we wanted to use. And it's, there was nothing, there's really nothing made up about that. That's really what he thought. Do you or people get upset with Pete when he, he improv scenes? You're like, no, no, stick to the script, stick to the script. Or do you see his genius in the improv? improv? Well, I mean, to be honest, Judd's process is giving actors the room to put things in their own words, letting actors 
uh, be improvisational. People misunderstand that, though. They think that it's just letting whatever happen happen, which is not the truth at all. Judd just recognizes that the best way to get a good performance out of someone is to let them be free and natural and loose. So the, his whole concept is you let actors do that after you truly infuse the meaning of the scene with them. So he's only letting them do that because he's doing enough rehearsal and talking to the actor enough that, he, that they understand what needs to come across and that by the time you are on set, it's so second nature. You don't have to remember the words themselves. You know what ideas are going across and that creates the more naturalistic kind of tone. Got it. Why do you think... I mean, I, like, why do you think you and Pete get, get, get each other so much when it comes to comedy and, like, and script writing and comedy writing and stuff? I saw him say that, like, you know, Judd was like, talk about Dave, the, the co-writer of the movie, like, and Pete was like, I just don't think, like, Dave just gets my comedy. He knows where I'm coming from whenever I'm trying to get something across. What, do you have, you know, you obviously wrote his update pieces on SNL. You've done stand-up with him, like, so you know him inside and out. But, like, do you think there's, like, a special reason for that? No, it's just we very early on and getting to know each other, despite, you know, me being older than him, uh, you know, coming from very different places. Uh, you know, I'm from Brooklyn. He's from Staten Island. Uh, he, uh, it, it, we just always kind of got each other. He, we always thought each other were very funny, really, honestly. We always just had a real sense of what, like, we just get exactly what we're doing. We just have a very similar sense of humor. So he appreciates the jokes that I do as much as anyone, and I know exactly what he's doing as well. It, it's really not, it's hard to even explain it more than that. Just, we really get each other's sense of humor. We have a very similar kind of writing. We, we think the same things are funny. So it's easier to work as like one cohesive group rather than bouncing ideas back and forth until you agree on something. Yeah, like he, he gets what I'm, the, even the more weird stuff that I pitch, he gets it. He gets where I'm going. Uh, and like, you know, we co-wrote all his, almost, not all, but almost every update feature you've seen him do, we co-wrote together. Uh, we co-wrote the roasts that he's done. So like, we just found that, we, yeah, we, we have a very compatible sense of what's funny. Uh, that's great, man. Now, I have a question. Uh, your first ever script that you ever worked on, um, and I'm coming in as like a comic trying to write uh maybe like a short series and uh another friend of mine he just graduated from emerson as a director how would you go about your first project altogether? would you try to do it independently all the way or would you try to pitch a script well before you have any experience it's going to be almost impossible to just pitch a script you right. really have to, the the unfortunate truth if i'm if you're really asking me how to get a movie made you get a movie made by getting a star attached. Okay. The best book you can ever read about the truth about the movie industry is the one written by Tom Lennon and Ben Garrett about movie making. Because they're not teaching you how to write a script. They're literally teaching you how to get a, a script sold. Okay. And, the way, and this is the truth that I read in this book. I remember reading it because the whole thing of it is, well, no matter how great your script is, no matter how perfectly you write it, your best case scenario for getting it made is to get it in front of a star who can open a movie and then that star is going to have his own writer ruin your script. 
<laughs> he's going to, because that star gets to make all those decisions. He's going to bring in some dick who gets to take your perfect script and say, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're not going to do. And yep. you're going to say, yes, sir, because that's the only way this movie is going to get made. And I remember reading that thinking, oh, man, that sucks. And they're like, oh, wait a second. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm that guy. <laughs> so that's really the truth. The truth is, if you really want to get your new script made, you got to figure out a way of a star being like, I want to make this movie. If you don't do that way, then yeah, you might have to produce it yourself and get it into small uh, circuits of, of shows and, and contests and stuff and festivals and just try to get traction that way. The only way in this day and age you're going to get any real traction is if people get eyes on your project. And right. you can do that a lot of different ways. There are people who just write a great script and then they get it to submit it to these, uh, you know, like networks and studios have their, the, the, the things you can send in different scripts, but you're still getting lost in a shuffle. You're not going to necessarily be a meritocracy because there's just too much. Yeah, it's, so it's all it's, in who you know. Yeah, it's about yeah. making someone powerful feel like they need you. Mm. And the way that, like, that's honestly what I think is the most common way that new writers get their stuff made is if they get the right person to feel like they can take advantage of it. Okay. Why not? Thanks for that, man. Yeah, because uh, that whole... Screen like yeah, like screenwriting and all that. That's new to me. I'm just I've been hammering away at just stand up like last six years. So once I started trying to go into different more facets and everything like that, it was like when I was like, oh, this is a lot more than I thought it was gonna be. It's not just writing jokes for myself. It's like you know you have a vision, and then you don't want anybody to fuck with it. Then you don't know where to go. You don't know who to give it to. Yeah. So I definitely. And especially if it's your first script, the one thing you should be very comfortable with is getting fucked. Yeah. <laughs> you are not going to not get fucked. I love it. Okay. Your best case scenario is that this is a bad experience. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> nah, dude, I love it. Yeah, this is great. Okay. It's like stand up all over again, dude. <laughs> your best, you should, exp if you, your first movie, if you get that movie made, you should absolutely expect to number one, not even be allowed on set. <laughs> I was, I was so lucky that I was in the kind of movie where you're allowed on set. There's a phrase in movies, literally, there's a phrase, get the writer off the set. Directors oh. do not like writers. Yo, keep it basement. Keep it basement, back at it, baby, with the bang bangers. Let's get ready to rumble! Yeah. Yeah, let's bring it. Nigga, shut your ass up, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't give a fuck, man. You are listening to Keep It. In the basement, like most Italians, if you're not Italian, keep it there anyway. Well, that's cool, because you're a fan. I'm a fan, too. You know what I'm saying? And I think, to me, fans make the best interviewers. You know what I mean? Like, because we're asking the questions from a fan perspective. When you're a true fan, and you follow the artist, and you study your artist, and you know an artist's music, you know an artist's background, you know the questions the right questions to ask because you're asking questions from a fan perspective. And not only that, the reason you said that you're able to talk to uh, your favorite artists for an hour, it's not that you're able to talk to them for an hour. It's you're able to listen to them for an hour. It's a yeah. difference. 
See, a lot of interviewers don't listen. See, I'm a listener. I, like, yeah. like a lot of interviewers, I have 20 questions, and all they want to do is get through those 20 questions. But the yeah. truth of the matter is, if you ask me a question, if I ask an artist a question, and the artist answers me, if I'm listening, I'm probably going to get something else out of his answer that I want to ask him. And that's what a conversation is all about. Hello? Hello, Sipes? Hey, Sipes, what's up? Hey, what's going on? This is Mike Sweeney. Hey. What's up, dude? Mike Sweeney, the idiot. Got it. What, keep it what radio? Basement. Keep it basement? Like, keep it, like, keep it in the house. Keep it yeah. basement radio? Okay. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, hey, what's going on? It's your boy, Lil Dicky. Shout out Mike Sweeney, Swain, and Keep It Basement Radio. What's up, guys? This is Mickey Gall. You're listening to Keep It Basement. Keep It Basement. Making money. Well, no, we wrote a script for Todd Phillips that the studio passed on. Oh, okay. But we still showed it to uh, to Judd, and he he was like, "Oh, I like this. Let's right. uh, let's 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 start over, but let's write another script together." I, I that they his that the his people read it and they just really liked it. They just they thought like, "Oh, wow!" They 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 thought that we improved a lot and that they wanted to to get back into business with us. Uh, Dave, when you were talking about writing a script or a TV show, you said get someone big and make them think they need you. Uh, yeah. recently, recently, someone told me talent could get you only like could get you so far. You need someone like a big network or someone behind you to believe in you. And do you believe that to be true? Like, what do you think the takeaway of, of that is? Well, it's not the only way you can do it. But if you try to make a movie, movies are typically very big undertakings. It's not like you can't be someone to make a movie on your own. It's certainly happened plenty of times. People make no-budget movies and they just take off and it's great. But that's not exactly something you can reproduce no matter how good your movie is because you still have to get people to see it. And you can put a movie online. It can be great. doesn't mean it's going to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's very – I never really thought that I'd have much luck trying to do things on my own. It was always about, like, you want to really get the whole machine behind you. You know, and that's what was so great about this movie is I got to be part of just all these professionals – who know how to do everything and everyone's the top of their field and to see how a really good movies run. So you said something interesting. Uh, you seem like an opportunist because you were like, what I was watching an interview. You said whatever comedy worked best for me, there wasn't just one thing you were doing at one time. It was like whatever got you on the map and you were able to do what you wanted to do in comedy, whether it be writing, interviewing, uh, you know, just comedy stuff like that. And I thought that was really interesting. Well, I mean, it was just, I was never looking at this like I have to just be a stand-up. I have to just be a touring headliner. I just wanted to do comedy and I wanted to do it in whatever capacity was best for me. You know, it's important to open the doors that open. Exactly. You can't, you can't go into any industry and think you're going to just force what your dreams are. You have to figure out what you're best at. And I'm best at certain things and I'm not best at others. And I, don't, I only want to compete in something where I might be the best. I only want to try something where I have a chance at being at the top. You know, I don't think I'm ever going to be the best headlining stand-up alone. It's just not what I'm best at. I'm not that charismatic. I'm not that affable on stage. I can write good jokes. So I want to do what I have a chance of being at least a chance that I could be among the best of. Was that a tough pill to swallow? Well, like you said, though, like say you blew up as you did. Now you could do stand-up if you wanted to. You have that lane, I feel like. I still do it. And yeah. I was supposed to have a Netflix special until the quarantine happened. Damn. But, you know, it's Damn. still, I yeah. never thought of myself as my goal here is to spend all year traveling, doing, you know, headlining gigs at comedy clubs. It just wasn't yeah. my main 
thing. I wanted to make comedy. I wanted to be on TV. I wanted to create things that I could see on TV. Yeah, a lot of people don't think like that. They're like, they're not evolving either. They'll be like doing the same open mics and like not evolve. And other people have that mentality. Like I need to be a stand-up comedian. You do this. But I like the other avenues of stuff too. It's interesting. Well, you know, the times change and stand-up changes. And the, you know, the place where you see comedy changes. When I was a kid, movies were the best place to see comedy. And now it's TV. TV oh, yeah. is much more creator driven when it comes to comedy. Yeah. When you were doing those early interviews early on with the church stuff, which is hilarious. Uh, were you inspired by anyone in particular? Because like I went back and looked at like Tom Green and I, I didn't realize he was such an OG. Like he did a lot of stuff because I do interviews too. Like I interview porn stars and whatnot and like comedy interviews and seeing your stuff was uh, dope. And I was like, oh, I wonder if he was inspired by anyone in particular. Well, here's the thing about that. I, the first time I did that bit of being the reporter Brickstone and fucking with people in real life was 1997. Oh, wow. Yeah. Really? You were a, a game yep. changer. I was a, a yeah. freshman in college. Wow. I was doing Dave that on campus. Like 25. Yeah, you were going to shit. <laughs> I was doing that on campus. Wow. I was lying. I was do at the at time. Syracuse, right? Yeah, at Syracuse. At the time, Syracuse. the bit was literally what years later would be Jimmy Kimmel's bit, Lie Witness News. Yeah. I was doing literally that in 97 at Syracuse, lying to people about news stories because you couldn't Google it on your phone at the time and just seeing if I could trick them into pretending to know about something that didn't happen. And you can't get, couldn't have gotten it out for people to really know because there was no phones and really no internet. Uh, right. You could lie to someone to their face. They had no yeah. way of knowing you were lying. That's fucking wild. Until they get home and turn on the news. You know, they, yeah. they got to believe you. Yeah, because I remember your first Westboro Baptist that I saw. Because I, I actually emailed you. Like, this was way back in the day. I saw Pete at Stress. I think you were featuring. And I yeah. emailed you. I was probably blowing you a little bit because I was too much of a bitch to start stand-up. And, and then you emailed me a couple times, and then I started. And then I was watching the Westboro stuff back when they – because they were they – were, they used to be, like, kind of, like – they are a little bit, like – People hated them. Like, they kind of, like, fell off a little bit. I feel like I don't, you don't really hear from them anymore because there's so much other shit going yeah, on. Yeah, they've completely lost relevance. They're nobodies which, now. Ever since which Fred Phelps died and they removed <laughs> Shirley Phelps from the leadership, guys like Steve Drain tried to keep it going, and they had no clue how to. They're just terrible at this. They, they don't even leave Kansas anymore. It's pathetic. Watching them not realize that you're just shitting on them is just what basically, you know, is basically just, like, you can't even do anything but laugh. But like you going back to 97, starting all out, it was, it was like, you know, that was insane. Cause you shot from college right to LA, right? You didn't, you went straight to LA after college. A couple of years doing stand up in New York between that was about it. Okay. And that, and yet that's what really hit for you. You put those Westboro videos on YouTube, yeah. probably when YouTube like was just coming out and they hit. Yeah. The first one was 2010. And uh, they, I started doing more of them because I was like, a lot of times with YouTube, that's what you do. You figure out what people like of you and then you just keep doing that. So I did like that, other hate groups, man in the show, working best for me. And then, uh, you know, it became a popular thing a little bit later. But uh, yeah, like I said, I was doing it since college. So it was, it was, it was nothing new for me. I was like, oh, I should apply this to hate groups. That's, even, that's the perfect thing for me to do with this <laughs> character. Because yeah, was, was, the whole yeah. idea behind it was like, I knew... I could make them hate this <laughs> because every time I would see them get harassed or counter protested, they always looked happy. And I just knew I was like, the formula here is how to make them look really unhappy, how to make it look like they do not want to be here right now. Were you filming that with uh, where iPhones out yet? Were you filming with the iPhones or is it a camera? 
Oh, no, as a, as a camera, it's an XHA1. Nice. It was an HD camera. Many people don't get, like, how silly the other person can be. Like, the questions you ask can make or break it, which is great. Like, the people were so dumb or believed it or got so angry about it. And I think that's true comedy in a way. A lot of people well, hate on that. Don't think it's, like, real comedy. The key with them was exploiting what I expected them to think and do. They think they're smart. They think they're witty. Yeah. If you question them on that, if you give them the opportunity to try to prove that, then you can really hurt them. Because, now, because they, they take pride in their ability to not get humiliated. So if you can humiliate them, if you can make them look bad, if you can outwit them, it will frustrate them. And when you frustrate them, that's when the fun really starts. <laughs> Did it get tiring though when you said you were trying to get what the people wanted on YouTube? Like were you like trying to keep playing a part or to keep trying to do it and it was kind of getting old or what was the motivation? Well, I mean I did. I chose not to try to do it on a regular basis. I did it when it was the opportunity. I didn't rush myself. I had like, you know, YouTube people trying to say, oh, you should be doing one a week and break up your videos. Take each one of your Westboro videos and break it up with like 10 parts yeah. and do an intro. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Brickstone. Here we got a cool video for you. Like and subscribe. Show one clip and then make them wait, wait a week for the next one. And I'm like, yeah, that's the stupidest goddamn thing I ever heard. <laughs> You're basically saying, let's make it so I'm going to try to pander to 14-year-olds on, on YouTube as opposed to doing videos that can get on the news. Yeah, that's what people do. So I, I just, I was never going to do that stuff. How that's would great, you um great foresight, though, too. Because, like, a lot of dudes pin themselves in that corner. Or it's just like, now you have to be that guy with a camera in your fucking face all the time. Just like, yeah. Hey, guys, next week I'll be unboxing... <laughs> right like something and i'm like dude what like uh it's a very simple formula if you're going to be doing youtube videos for me my whole thing was i don't want to do a single video that has less hits than i have subscribers because all these people who do it weekly the people who make it their jobs the jake pauls of the world <laughs> they have like none of their videos have more views than their subscribers because they're just catering to their their fans i wanted my shit to be on the news so that's why I had way more hits than subscribers, but just a lot less videos. Different avenue and a different approach. Yeah, I want to be on BuzzFeed. I want to be, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I want my shit to be on Facebook. I want people sharing my shit. And no one's doing that with Jake Paul videos. Was that the thing you wanted to be on the map? Like you wanted to get your shit on the map? Like you realized <clears throat> doing stand-up comedy early on, like you can't get on the map right away. It takes like years. You're like, let me try to do this idea. Get the shit well, on the map. Well, yeah, because I didn't think that my stand-up was ever going to get me anywhere because I'm just not, I'm not, I'm not this hugely charismatic guy. I can write jokes, but I'm not this, you know, lovable character on stage that that's going to carry me. So I was like, I know I got to do what's best for me. Do and you know, I'm really good at pissing people off. <laughs> <laughs> do you know people who are really charismatic and really good on stage, but write shit jokes? Yes, I do. <laughs> Does that piss you off? Yeah. Does that piss you off in a way? Or is it like you help them? No, I think it's great that they found a way into comedy. Just because their jokes are bad doesn't mean they don't belong at the top. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just, just already, hurry up and say Chris D'Elia? We already know. No, I'm just kidding. Why? What's going on with him? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, to answer your question, that guy is everywhere, bro. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so weird. Have you ever have you ever ran into a uh, person uh, personally like a comedian that you looked up to and he was like a piece of shit like how Pete talks about Louie in a way like have you ever ran into that yourself? Ah, that's Somebody a good that's a good question. I don't. 
I don't think so, honestly. I can't think of any comic I loved who was like a dick. I mean, to be fair, there's so few people I love. (laughs) Uh, But my heroes, when I've gotten to meet my heroes, they've they've been really cool. Patton Oswalt, Robert Smigel, like, you know, they... Those are people who, like, could not have been cooler to me. And I didn't have many heroes, so I got lucky in that way. Uh, also, I have a dumb question. Uh, a girl asked me this. She says, I know this may come off as dumb, but I know a lot of people think, like, how does someone like yourself make good income? One, like, being, like, you're not in the main focal point of the picture, but you're a writer. And also, like, by not promoting hard on social media. She's like a, like an Instagram, like trying to be an Instagram model type thing. But I thought her question was interesting because she's asking like how do writers or people behind the scenes in comedy make income off of it? Like I know it takes time and everything, but they make great money. Well, you make, I mean, I'm not sure I understand the question. I mean, my income is from writing. Exactly. I'm making it. Yeah. In- I guess she was saying like, how do people like start making income on it? Oh, tons of well, people my income. Oh no. My income was based on the fact that I wanted to make videos. I wanted to have material online and I didn't want to pay anyone else to help me. So I bought my own camera I bought my own equipment and then I learned to do every single thing myself to make my own videos for free. And so every video you've seen me do, I did hundred percent of the work except for holding the camera myself. And then because of that, all the people who don't want to learn to do everything themselves have to hire me. So I could do just sound, just camera, just editing for everyone else. Gotcha. And so that's the way of supplementing your income. I was also doing a little bit of illustration, you know, stuff like that on the side. Going back to Smigel because, you know, Triumph, I feel like Triumph is a perfect gig for you. Like he's a, a lot of people pisses, have said that he pisses people off. <laughs> he's political, which I feel like is one of your fortes and yeah. it's, and it's comedy. So like you hit every nail on the head and I know how you got into that. And you said he's coming back, right? With some new stuff soon. Uh, so, today on funny or die. Yes. Oh, really? There is a, there was a quarantine squares we did on funny or die today. Oh, dope. We are also going to be part of TBS's Laugh Contest show where it's uh, comedians competing against each other. And there's going to be, and there's other stuff down the line. Is that, um, obviously you just wrote an incredibly successful movie with, with your, one of your good friends, but like, is, do you feel a little bit, do you feel the most comfortable doing like, a, like writing for a Triumph or is that just meet like, it just like seems like it would be your best thing, but you kind of, you know, you like doing everything. No, I mean, I, 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 yeah, I would say that writing for Triumph is one of the most comfort zone things I could do. It's exactly in what I'm, what I, what I'm uh, comfortable with. So, yeah, no, I mean, I love writing for Triumph. And yeah, I would say it does come very naturally. Writing a movie is a much more complicated thing to do. Right. You're going to have a lot more pitfalls and a lot, it's not going to be nearly as smooth. Yeah, I kind of I, I also find it hard to start writing from another perspective when you spend all this time on your own. Yeah. It's very important to learn to think outside yourself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The only way you're going to really be able to generate stand up is honestly, I think you, you can't think about yourself. You have to exist in the world, which is a thing that like used to exist a lot more. People used to not think in terms of themselves and how they're seen nearly as much as they do now. Everyone has this sort of latent idea that they're the star of a reality show. And oh, people yeah. used to really focus outside themselves more than they do. 
most definitely the world seemed way bigger like i agree too because i was born i was born 94 so those developmental years i could tell i viewed the world way different than like my younger siblings do now like i see it within the thought process the demeanor everything because like i remember when we first got the internet like 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 granted internet like was was around but like I remember it got to me around 98 and like I remember I couldn't wrap my head around it and like these like little kids are just goddamn businessmen all of a sudden like yeah there's a certain thing where like you see people and it's like you almost get the impression that they never ever stop being self-aware they never, yeah. ever don't think about how someone is going to view me right now. And it can drive people crazy. And I think that, I do think that there's, for whatever reason, much more rampant mental illness now than there ever was. It feels like it. It feels like something is unhinging people so easily now in a way that didn't used to be. And I think it has to partially be their access to, to each other and echo chambers mm. and the lack of this sort of basic social structures that kept people sane of mm. like that you because you used to have to interact with the average person and now you can only interact with people you have the option to only interact with people like yourself sure and that's extremely dangerous it's almost that's, like everybody's getting the celebrity treatment without being a celebrity yeah and not even all celebrities are mentally equipped to even handle that not like, at all. Like, like well, not let at alone all. the average person. Yeah. And if it wasn't for this echo chamber stuff, if it wasn't for the ability to create false realities, to let people, to coax them into a sense that something is real when it's not, you would not have these Infowars zombies. You would not have these Alex Jones people who just believe the most pathetically fake shit in history. Flat Earth. Yeah. Because, like audience baiters. I don't get it. Yeah. Their 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 it. connection to reality is just completely falling apart because enough people are because they're weak enough on some level that if enough people say to them, no, this is true, they just say, I guess it is. Sheep mentality. And the worst thing about it is they don't even realize that these that you know conspiracy theories used to just be about bored schizophrenics and now it's honestly about to be perfectly honest it's about extreme right-wing people trying to take advantage of schizophrenics because they don't even understand that all these conspiracies so many of these conspiracies they're all rooted in one basic idea don't let the government feed you don't let the government help you. Yeah. You should be against anything that ra- I roundabout will have to pay taxes for. <laughs> uh. That's essentially the argument. It's always, I don't want to pay taxes, and I can't say that, so I'm going to convince you not to accept them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> where yeah. do you think the word where do you think the phrase the most dangerous words in the English language are the scariest words in the English language are I'm from the government and I'm here to help <laughs> that's a Reagan quote <laughs> and the real meaning behind that quote is I am sick to death of pain for disaster relief Thanks. yeah wow Dave I was watching a podcast interview 
And like the person doing the interview was trying to get like a lot of inside information about Pete and the way you handled it. Like you could tell you're a real good friend and he was trying to like talk about mental health and stuff. And you're like, well, it's a personal issue. And you were giving a little detail, but I just thought a lot about that. And like, that's like loyalty. I don't know exactly the uh, podcast, but I saw it on YouTube and they were like talking about like mental health and you were talking like big about that. And it was, he kept trying just to get like a lot out of it. And you kind of just held your own without being a dick and just like told him, you know, it's a personal issue. And you were just really genuine about it. It was cool. Well, I have a little bit of experience with leading interviews. So (laughs) I know exactly what it means when someone thinks that they're going to put, thinks they're going to trick you into saying something that they can use as a soundbite. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it was good stuff because I could tell you were serious about mental health while like being light about it. Yeah, you know, we should be serious about it. It's Definitely. it's ruining the world. Yeah. The just lack of try, just mental- don't try to come up on views on it either. You know what I mean? Like if you're if you're if you're, if you're really concerned about somebody, you should just leave it with the uh with with, with the uh information that's uh, that's dealt, not like trying to just get deeper into someone's life. You know, like well, you know, a lot of we weird. One of the biggest problems we have in the world is when we created an economy based on attention. Yeah, yeah. sure. Without a doubt. And one of the worst things that ever happened in this world was when negative attention stopped being a net negative. Mm-hmm. The idea that getting attention in a bad way is better than not getting attention at all is one of the most dangerous things that ever happened in world history. Look at that. No such thing as bad press. Like, I always will be like, nah, it's still bad, dude. <laughs> like, there's, yeah. there's, there's bad that comes with bad press, bro. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And there's people out there who literally think you should commit a crime to get on TV and you'll be rich. Yes. It's, not even, it's not even true, yet it's this idea that kids have. Yeah, we we got one right now with rainbow hair and witness protection. See how that balances out. (laughs) I mean, I do hope. I mean, I I I hope Takashi doesn't have a perfect life because I want kids to know you can't do this. (laughs) (laughs) You can't. Like, like I don't. It defies all logic. Like, besides, if Takashi has a great life, it's going to ruin millions of children's lives. Oh, without a doubt. Like to Lil set Tay. that example. Without, yeah. a, without a doubt, dude. Exactly like Lil Tay. Where is she? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was rough. Something's going to happen. Yeah, uh, yeah. Whatever happened to her? Yeah. I don't know. Speaking she was of in Jake Paul's anti-teacher video. Jesus. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a great guy to surround yourself with, too. Yeah. Jake Paul, Takashi, they just had a group. Yeah, that's the yeah. thing. I was he talking- reminds me of like a heel in wrestling that doesn't know he's a heel in wrestling. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's another thing that's one of the most dangerous aspects of modern culture. Real world people think they can make heel turns, <laughs> which is, of course, Kevin Spacey's Christmas video. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that came out of nowhere, too. I was like, I kind of got scared when I watched that. It's terrifying. The idea that we can have a real life version of celebrating evil. Martin Shkreli tried it. Kevin yeah. Spacey tried it. Yeah, yeah, they they're... It scares me that this dude's just walking around like this, like in your everyday life. Not like exclude the fact that there's these motherfuckers that have a ton of money. You know what I mean? They go off the rails. But there's like dudes that are on the brink like that. That are just at seven eleven and chilling. Like, bro, yeah, the what do you what do you spike up AIDS medication by like Five thousand percent or something like that. Yeah, like, Shkreli. Yeah, he tried insane, to gouge people on an AIDS medication. Yeah, that's. And then crazy. he went to jail anyway for unrelated stuff. He looked like a scammer. <laughs> like, that's crazy. 
Dave, I know you got to go soon, but I was wondering, how do you surround yourself with talented people and network without being a douche? Not saying I'm a douche personally, but like, you don't want to be one of those YouTubers like Jake and Logan Paul, where like one of their friends is dating a porn star. So he blew up that way on YouTube because of that. But I'm saying, how do you surround yourself with like talented individuals and network and make movies together and comedy scripts and all that stuff? What are the keys you think? I mean, it's like I said before, it's about being indispensable to someone else. It's about being someone that someone else thinks they can advance. They can Letting, letting someone take advantage of you. Letting someone say, I can exploit this guy's talent. Because the last thing I'm going to do is go around trying to make friends with famous people. I'm, mm. The ones I'm friends with, it just kind of happens because of where I am. And if they respond to you, if they like you, you, you are. But it's not like I don't notice how many more people want to be my friend since being Pete's best friend. Mm. So it's, it's something to be careful of. Because you don't want to seem like you're being cloying or that you're uh, latching on to a famous person just because you met them. I mean, like I've met John Mulaney plenty of times, but I know better than to be like obsessive that, you know, I'm John Mulaney's friend now. You know, yeah, he, he's yeah. awesome. I don't yeah. want to ruin it. Does yeah. it get annoying when everyone asks you Pete Davidson questions? I mean, I kind of expect it, but it's, you know, I think uh, it's, it, I don't really, it's not really annoying because it's so much a part of what I write that it kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's weirder when they ask me Ariana questions. <laughs> that is weird. <laughs> well, like I would have people I know be like, hey, so did you, oh, so did you meet Dylan? And I'm like, who's Dylan? Like, oh, it's her, it's one of her friends. And I'm like, uh, the short guy with the black hair? They're like, yeah. I'm like, uh, I didn't remember his name. W why do you know it? <laughs> yeah, that's so what the? Oh. He's got those hardcore fans. That's funny. Well, yeah. but she was know. nice. She's cool. Oh, that's good. All right, Dave. Well, I would know. We don't want to keep you, Mike or Alex. You guys got anything else to say? Ask. I was, um, was, was going to say when Snoop Dogg does like music panels, all starving artists come out to him and try to give him like music. Does that happen to you in comedy, where like all these comedians try to make you like make them listen to their YouTube sets and like uh, you know give you writing scripts to take home and stuff and work samples? It's yeah, it's it's a lot of scripts. A lot of people. <laughs> are you like throwing it out the window? Why are you a nice guy who reads it all? I mean, sometimes they're good. So, you know, I'm, I'm happy to help. I'm trying to get someone's script sold right now because it's good. But, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's... If I send you one, will you read it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Throw it out the window. <laughs> Sometimes if it's bad, he throws the CDs out the window or the, uh, the flash drives out the window. I'm going to email it. I'm going to send it regardless. Not giving you a timeline, but yes. That's fine. <laughs> All right, dude. Well, we thanks so much. Dude. The movie's The King of Staten Island. It's on Amazon. Thank you so much. Thank Check you out guys. Triumph on Funny or Die now that yeah, you fine, just said man. that. And, dude, we thank you so much for jumping on real quick. The movie's amazing. And hope success. And hope it will be in touch, man. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. All right. Later. Thank you, dude. All right. Cheers. All right, peace, man. All right. Good guy. Good Love you. Up, guys. Nice short app. 58 minutes. Probably less with the transfer. Hey, man. Hour on the nose. That's what we were shooting for. He's so nice. Hey, what's going on? This is Mike Sweeney. Sweeney. What's up, dude? Mike Sweeney, the idiot. Got it. What keep it what radio? Basement. Keep it basement? Like keep it like keep it in the house. Keep it yeah. basement radio? Okay. Yeah. Alright, alright. Uh hey what's going on? It's your boy Lil Dicky. Shout out Mike Sweeney Swain and Keep It Basement Radio. What's up guys? This is Mickey Gall. You're listening to Keep It Basement. Keep it basement. You are tuned in. <laughs> you are tuned in to the Keep It Basement podcast with your boy Sweeney. 
Y'all heard? What up, Sween? Now tune to motherfucking Derelict. Keep it basement with the Sweens. That's the name of the podcast. Keep it basement with the Sweens. Keep it basement. We out? Welcome the newest sponsor of the podcast, Fleshlight. Fleshlight is the number one male sex toy in the world with its soft, real feel insert patented to be so lifelike that many have proclaimed it feels better than the real thing. While there is no substitute for a real woman, amazing inner textures and over a hundred possible combinations to choose from, we all have to work a little harder to keep up. Fleshlights offer an adjustable cap to control the desired suction level you prefer as well as a channeled sleeve. Able to stretch in order to accommodate the repeated discomfort of your girth. Easy to clean and durable, Fleshlight is your number one choice brand for male sex toys. Fleshlight also offers flesh skins, sleeves, anal toys, and accessories, including lube, mounts, cases, sleeve warmers, vibrators, and more. For more information, search Fleshlight on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or visit www.fleshlight.com. This is the Keep It Basin Podcast. Follow us on YouTube, subscribe to us, also on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes Music, Laughable, and wherever else you could listen to us and view us. Thank you for tuning in. Keep It Basement is brought to you by Promescent. Promescent is a safe, proven, effective, lasting longer spray that can delay ejaculation and let men enjoy lovemaking in a way that they didn't know was possible. Promescent isn't just a spray to help you last longer in bed. It's a way to slow down the clock, giving you more time to play, more time to explore, and more time to discover new levels of intimacy with your partner. The primary benefit of using Promescent is that it is a local therapy and you won't have the risk of experiencing side effects like you would with an oral supplement. Simple and easy to use, just spray on the underside of the head of your penis and some on the underside shaft as well. Apply three or more sprays, but no more than 10 and rub in. Wait five to 10 minutes until it is fully absorbed into your skin. Don't forget to wash off the spray before engaging in sexual intercourse. Promescent offers spray, lubricant, condoms, and betaflux, an erectile dysfunction pill, and offers free shipping on U.S. orders over $10. Follow Promescent on Instagram or visit promescent.com for more information. This is the Keep It Basement Podcast. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Laughable, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and anywhere else you can listen to us at. And also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, at Keep It Basement. And check the YouTube page out, Keep It Basement YouTube, for more interviews and content coming your way. Thank you for listening. Check out dankstop.com. We have the biggest selection of bongs, vaporizers, accessories, anything that you're looking for in the smoking industry. Use promo code BEAWESOME. That's B-E-AWESOME, A-W-E-S-O-M-E. One word, put it together, no spaces. That's for 15% off. Check us out. Uh, stay tuned for a giveaway that we're doing with Keep It Basement. Shout out Keep It Basement. You guys were awesome. And hopefully we speak again soon. Thank you, Louie. Shout out to Dang. Yo, this is Sean Kelly, founder of Jersey Champs. <laughs> Sam. I'm not looking at you. What the fuck are you talking about, man? Yo, this is Sean Kelly, founder of Jersey Champs, and you're listening to Keep It Basement. Uh, oh, I would love to tell you. I would love to tell you that basically... Uh, Mike Sweeney, the head president CEO of Keep It Basement, fully admitted. At least you know it. Keep it fucking moving. Um, Porn sex, it's like 45 minutes an hour, but like real sex is like 20 minutes. Well, maybe for me, I guess. Try like three or four hours. Hour and 45 minutes? What the fuck? It's four hours. Words of wisdom here. Always use a condom, and if you don't use a condom, make sure you got like really strong pull-out game, okay? (laughs) Pull-out game week. Yeah, wear a condom. Are you nuts? I have two hairless cats. I want to. Can you get laid whenever with a bunch of options? How thirsty are your DMs? It's pretty lit.
I ain't got Instagram, I don't got tweeters, I don't got nothing. A younger guy pick up a, a woman who's older than him. That's a really great question. How could I approach you and take you back to my room if we were sitting at a bar? You ask too many fucking questions. Don't ask no fucking questions. Plus, do funny guys get laid more? Oh yeah, definitely. Would you date a uh, guy with a small penis? Like how small? <laughs> How's, how big's your penis? Like four inches. How funny are you? Then you put that video on fucking Worldstar. I hit the thing, it's YouTube. Fuck me up more. I'm sick of it. Stay down in the cellar and shut the fuck up. Now. Keep It Basin podcast Keep it description. Basement. Find Keep It Basin with the Sweens wherever you get your podcast with hosts Tom Zappia and Alex Nicholas. Please make that a permanent drop in every episode. I scold them myself. Keep It Basement podcast. We out. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Stealth Mode Motorsports. Stealth Mode Motorsports. It's a fucking read-through. What am I supposed to be? Act interested. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Stealth Mode Motorsports. Yeah. Stealth Mode Motorsports serves worldwide motorcycle enthusiasts, racers, Dale Earnhardt Jr., and custom builders with the highest quality quality OEM parts for Honda, Yamaha, Suzuki, Kawasaki, and Ducati, super sport motorcycle models. We buy and sell used motorcycles as well. Based out of Charlotte, North Carolina, StealthModeBikes.com, also on Facebook and Instagram at Stealth Mode Motorsports. Need an engine for a car? We supply engines to race teams all over the world. Lay your bike down and don't want to pay dealer pricing? Contact us for a fraction of dealer prices. Specializing in Yamaha R1 and R6, GSXR 650,000, ZX6R, ZX10R, and CBR1000RR late model years. All current inventory can be found on our eBay store at ebay.com slash str slash stealth mode motorsports. Check them out. What do you want to do? You want to go to the Shipbag Comedy Show and then maybe try to roll through stress? Guys, follow your dreams and listen to Keep It Basement Rate. Subscribe. Hey, thanks, guys. Peace. Just masturbate if all else fails. Peace. Exactly. Get a job in California. If you don't like it, fuck it. You get on a plane, fly home. That's it. Take a chance. Four minutes at the at the, at the, at the, at the comedy club in New Brunswick. Four minutes. Might turn into a, a spot on a Jimmy Kimball Tonight Show. You never know. You got to try it. You just can't stay on a safe route because then you're going to end up being kind of bitter when you get older. That you didn't take no chances. And that's it. That's my feel on things.